from David Budbill, a poem entitled Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around never leaving their bowl. I say that's right, every day climbing up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. So this poem captures our human dilemma. We're all just like bugs in a bowl. And because we keep sliding up the sides and falling back down, cry, moan, feel sorry for ourselves, we sometimes forget to look around at our fellow bugs and say, how you doing? Saying, nice bowl. And this also represents the, this poem encapsulates the entire trajectory, you could say, of the spiritual path or the path of awakening. And even though each week I remind everyone here that the path goes nowhere and not to look anything anywhere beyond this living present, nevertheless, if one practices a little bit at a time, a moment at a time, settling back into the moment, waking up to things as they have come to be, as they are, there is inevitably, in coming to slowly, slowly, a little bit at a time, coming to a single point, there inevitably becomes a deeper appreciation of our deep connection with the world around us. You can't help it. And it's paradoxical because the way that we connect with all of life, the way that we widen our view, the way we move from the narrow gravitational field of our crying and our moaning to the wide gravitational field of the Dharma, the wide view of the world and, and the connection between things, the way we do that is we come to a single point. Where is that point? That point is right where you're sitting. The point where you, as the poet that I often quote here, uh, I forgot his name for a moment, but where he talks about the little duck who eases himself into the boundless just where it touches him. That we repose in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. So paradoxically, our practice goes nowhere, 
We don't need to look for anything but this right here. And yet, when we do this, all of a sudden, as I bring myself to this single point in this room, no matter what, how much crying or moaning I've been doing, if I can just know that my hand is, I'm wiggling my fingers, if I can know that I'm just feeling the contact of my rear on the cushion, or I'm feeling sad, or I'm feeling happy, or I'm in a room with you, I come out of the, the, ta the tangle of my narrow gravitational field of my self-preoccupations, and all of a sudden my view's wider. And what I've done is really nothing more than use my attention. The attention that is ever-present, ever-available, that has no location. In other words, it is not just limited to the space between my ears. It includes every sensation that's felt, everything that's seen, everything that's heard, everything that's smelled, tasted. It includes everything. And as those immediate, you could say, sense experiences come into focus, into the focus of awareness, of being mindful, where I'm aware with clear comprehension what it is that's happening, I'm using what is utterly natural to me and to you. I'm using this capacity to be present. This, is, this capacity to be present is primordial. It's your natural state, awareness. But when you give that awareness a focus, when you anchor it to the living present, not to building castles in your mind. I mean, you will do that, but, and if you notice that, that's also a moment of being present. If that goes unnoticed, you're, you're literally absent-minded, you're dreaming. But if you bring that attention to your thinking mind, your feeling mind, as we did during the the sitting, the body, the body, the breath, sounds, whatever it is that's here, you're, you, you're giving focus to that attention. You're using a quality in your mind that in the Pali language, in the language of the, the suttas, the teachings, this quality of mind is called vitaka. Vitaka is this capacity to gather our attention, to give it a, give it a focus to bring it here, to remind ourselves that I'm here in this room, or this room is in my awareness right now. Either way you want to think about it. And each time I do that, I get, each time I gather my attention, I orient myself, as hopefully you've been doing all night tonight, you're orienting yourself to the only place where we can find life, here. Everything else is imaginary. You use this simple quality of your mind called aiming or gathering. You use another part of your mind in order to stay here. That's called vichara, which means sustaining. It's that capacity to, to not just look at you, but stay with you. To look, if I'm looking into Andrea's eyes, to stay with her. 
And if I do that, if I look at Andrea and stay with her, I will start to feel a sense of connection. I'll start to feel a sense of comfort. You know, initially, if I'm not in the habit of it, I might, my mind want, might want to, um, to jet here, you know, jet this way and jet that way. But once I settle in to looking at somebody or feeling something, and I stay there for a while, there is a, a fruit to simply being here and staying here. There's a fruit and there's a feeling of comfort. And then not only do I feel comfort, but then I start to, and especially if I'm looking at another person or with you entirely, is I become very interested. I become rapt. I experience rapture. Rapture isn't always just some kind of special feeling. It's a it's the sense of being intensely interested where my mind and, or my interest is not going anywhere else. Sorry, I did shift my attention so, to the whole group. So much for my concentration. But it all comes from the simple act of gathering my attention, sustaining it, and then allowing the the heart qualities, the, the juiciness of what happens when we dwell in the living present. It's juicy to connect with Andrea. There's comfort, there's interest, and if I do it long enough, I then start to feel a sense of what we would call one-pointedness. One-pointedness, first of all, let me give you the Pali words for the comfort and the rapture. The comfort is called sukha. Sukha is the, the opposite of dukkha. Dukkha is that feeling of, of, of stress, dissatisfaction, unreliability, uh, unsatisfactoriness. Maybe I already said that. Sukha is comfort, ease, happiness. So, and then rapt attention or rapture is called pity. So we have vitaka, vichara, sukha, piti, and the last piece, ekagata or ekagata, one-pointedness. Maybe these words are Ill, irrelevant to you, but you do, you've all had the experience of one-pointedness. That sense of being so immersed in the immediacy of your experience, so one-pointed, so single-minded, that you feel some, a little bit, initially it feels as though you are experiencing some kind of altered state, but it's actually closer to your natural state than you might think. What the states that we're usually living in is, are altered states, and usually altered states of misery. So the meditation practice brushes that it just washes that tendency to, to be distracted. It washes it away and helps us land at this, at this single point. So in this process, we're in some ways narrowing our attention. We're gathering our attention here, and we're staying here. And when, once it culminates in that sense of one-pointedness, for however long it lasts, it's conditioned and so it, would, it might not last a long time, but if you sustain it, your, your life will become very, very concentrated in the present. But that experience of one-pointedness, 
That word ekagata, that sounds very, very narrow, doesn't it? One point. But the deepest meaning of that word one-pointedness, or ekagata, is the one point that includes everything. Why we feel more connected to each other, to another person, the life around us, when we are, our attention is there, and when our attention is sustained. It's the same thing that happens if you attend to your breathing, attend to your bodily sensations, or even attend to changing sensations and thoughts and moods. If your attention is there over and over, all of these qualities come in the wake of that intention to be present, to be mindful. So the direction of our practice, even though it seems like we're, we are entering, as I mentioned tonight in the instructions, if you close your eyes, you will start to feel a stilling. You may even start to feel a sense of seclusion. The whole point in gathering our attention into our body, into this room, is to be able to feel that deep kinship and connection to the life around us. So the direction is always from the narrow view of, of being lost in our little world of our imagination to a deeper connection, a wider uh, connection with life. So another way to achieve this sense of the widening of our lens is we can do it through reflection. We can do it in the room by simply attuning to first and foremost the fact that you are aware. You notice that you're aware. And notice that your awareness, well, just check it out to see, does it have any location? Does it have any height? Does it have any depth? Does it have any color, any form? Does it have an inside or does it have an outside? So awareness, the fact that, that things are being known, does that awareness have any limit to it at all? Anybody have any answer to that? Where is awareness? It's invisible, isn't it? But yet everything is known. Everything is known vividly, effortlessly. This is, this is awareness. It's implied in a way. You can't see it, but yet everything is known. And the fact that it is invisible, it has no particular location, it has no particular limit. You could say that it exists not as a separate thing or a place, but as the unity of everything. It's, it's uh, you could say that it's as the famous Thai master said when he talked about the phenomena of the world, he said all phenomena, although all phenomena without exception fall under the laws of impermanence, so everything that we notice, it comes, it goes, falls under the laws of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. Everything's just happening. 
selflessly, but the true nature of mind does not fall under these laws. The natural power of the mind itself is that it knows but it, and does not die. This deathlessness is something that is beyond disintegration. So the very awareness or consciousness through which you are perceiving is, uh, some would say, it's deathless, it's primordial, it has no limit, it's free, it's, it is inherently free, open. It's wide, it's, some would describe our, the nature of our mind is as wide as the sky and the whole purpose of our practice is to realize this sky-like nature of our mind and return ourselves to that which we really are, this unimmovable openness and clarity that allows everything to be known so vividly. So if we simply tune into the, this primordial fact, this ever-present fact of being aware, you may realize that you've been thinking about yourself as in very, very small, limited ways. You've been thinking, I am this person, this little person, my mind is between my ears, even though no one's ever seen one there. My mind is between my ears, and I'm very little, and the, everything out there is very big. And you may, and you walk around thinking all day, I'm little and the world is big. But then when you stop, and you, as, one, as they say in the Tibetan tradition, you unfurl your mind, you open it, you let it open. You let it, you let yourself settle into your natural state you'll see that you are gigantic. You are limitless. Your fundamental nature has no, has no barriers at all. But you've been thinking of yourself as a body, as these thoughts, as your memories, as your worries, like bugs in a bowl all day, climbing up the side, falling back down. And all the, the teachings say, look around and Notice what it is that's looking. Don't just be a little me looking out, but unfurl your awareness. Let it be open. So that's one of the other ways that we widen our view. Come out of the narrow view of my mind is little, this little mind is in here and you're out there, to this wider gravitational field of, of awareness or dharma. Does that make any sense to you, anybody? Or is that just like, whoa? <laughs> just tune into the, the fact of being aware right now. Not aware of something, just pure aware. Just be aware, don't do aware. Or better yet, try not to be aware. and it will just move to the, it'll just shine through. As the, the 
teaching says, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And it is colored by all the defilements that visit. This, the yogi, the, the ordinary person doesn't understand, so there's no cultivation of their mind. Then it goes on to talk about the yogi. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is unaffected by any of these defilements that visit. It's free. This the yogi understands, therefore they cultivate their mind. So luminous. Your mind is luminous, reflective. Otherwise, this room would not be so vivid, so clear. We wouldn't be able to connect if it wasn't for this capacity, this expression of the nature of our mind to, to, um, to see. So that's one way to, to widen our, come out of the tangle of our own little bug in, bugs in a bowl. I, I was just thinking of the Rumi poem where he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. He also says, because he waxes, he translates everything into love as we all should. This mind, heart, heart, mind, this giant heart that we all are, primordially. Says Rumi again, inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side. Die. And be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. From from Rumi. So what I, one of the ways, there, so there are many ways to come to this wider sense of connection through, through single-pointedness, through unfurling our mind, recognizing the nature of awareness. But it's also, as I said, something that we can, we can intuit, we can contemplate through reflection. Now, sitting in this church in the middle of the mission district, that's a conceptual, that's part of our conceptual world. We're, we're in the year 2015, mission district, transforming neighborhood. Some would say for the worse. Some would say it's improved. Many different views, opinion. But if we've just plopped into this neighborhood right now without any sense of the history, without any sense of 
of what built this neighborhood the, and being Cinco de Mayo, that this neighborhood was built as at least part of its causes and conditions were the, the vast Hispanic community in San Francisco, the presence of the original mission in the neighborhood over on Albion Street between, 16, between 16th and 17th, and then the Mission Dolores. And if we had this, if we had a very narrow view of the city, we wouldn't realize that we couldn't be here if it wasn't for all of those myriad causes and all the different cultural influences. I heard this home I visited this evening that, uh, that uh, one of my colleagues and I were looking at as a, just as a, on a whim, as a possible uh, San Francisco Dharma Center. It was an extraordinary home that on the front just looked like a little mission district home, but then when you went inside it had a ceiling like this, literally almost as grand, and it just perfectly suited for meditation, but I heard that some of the, the uh, labor, labor movements started in that home. Um, it was the home of, the, all these different things happened in this, in this neighborhood. Now if we live in a little vacuum of, oh, how exciting, all the new restaurants on Valencia Street, <laughs> you might miss that this neighborhood, it wouldn't even be interesting if it wasn't for the rich heritage of what's gone on here and the people who've, who built this neighborhood. And some people are living here because some people were kicked out. Yeah. Very, very possible. Yeah. Very possible. So to, to widen our view is to appreciate that. There may have been people here, you may be living in a place where someone else was kicked out. So to widen our circle of compassion, to widen our circle of understanding, that we don't, we don't exist as individually apart from the, from from each other as we sometimes imagine while we're being bugs in a bowl, crawling up the steep sides and falling back. But somehow, as we widen our view, reflecting on how the beginningless causes brought us to be in this room, you can't find a beginning to it. We also see that every person in this room also is the heir, is the inheritor of beginningless causes. And even if you were, uh, even if you um, somehow in your, in your conditioning learned some things that were not so wholesome and healthy and you have caused yourself or you have caused other people's harm, you came to that particular kind of condition through all of these wider a wider circle of influences. And so you can see the wider your lens of understanding of your own individual predicament in relationship to the conditioning that you've received is likely to be a cause of greater forgiveness, greater kindness, greater mercy, and perhaps a lot less self-blame 
and self-judgment, a lot less belief in the, uh, as I think I spoke of last night, in the, in the chronic, maniacal tendency to think of ourselves as isolated, unworthy, blameworthy, all of that begins to melt away into an ocean of compassion and caring when we see that none of us, given all of the myriad circumstances, can help ourselves up to this point. We can only keep moving from that narrow gravitational field of our preoccupation to a wider understanding and inevitably every seed that we plant in behalf of that will increase our sense of well-being and increase our sensitivity to the, our impact on the people around us, on our neighborhood, and we ca will carry with us the richness of, of knowing that, um, that we're not alone and that this neighborhood didn't just show up uh, all by itself, just as one example. So the whole point of our practice is to look around, see your fellow bugs, say, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. So. Say that again. Say, I'm sorry if I stepped on you. And say, I'm sorry if I stepped on you. Thank you. <laughs> now, I don't remember the name of this organization, but it's some kind of an organization. It's SNCC. Can somebody tell me what SNCC is? Say it louder. Yes, student nonviolent coordinating something rather <laughs> committee. Now there, I, now this, I was sent this um, their commitment, the commitment that they reflect on every day, and the, the their vision for their uh, for their organization. And it, to me, it so beautifully expresses this wideness of heart and the fact that whatever we do and think and, and say or don't say, it impacts uh, not just ourselves, but the world around us. And I think everyone here would like uh, more happiness and peace and kindness in this world. So uh, it really helps to widen your view. This is their... This is from James Lawson of the SNCC Constitution. We affirm the philosophical or religious ideal of nonviolence as the foundation of our purpose, the manner of our action. Nonviolence as it grows from whatever tradition, wisdom tradition, seeks a social order of justice permeated by love. Through nonviolence, Courage displaces fear. Love transforms hate. Acceptance dissipates prejudice. Peace dominates war. Faith reconciles doubt. Mutual regard cancels enmity. Justice overthrows injustice. The redemptive community supersedes systems of gross social immorality. Love is the central motif of nonviolence. Such loves goes to the extreme. 
it remains loving and forgiving even in the midst of hostility. So this requires a broad view that hatred, as the Buddha put it, hatred never ceases by hatred, by love alone. So the, from the Buddha, therefore, you should train yourself thus. We will develop and cultivate liberation of mind by love. Make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, steady and consolidate it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Thus, you should train yourself. So liberation of mind through love. So everybody committed to that? But in order to do that, we have to have our eyes open. Can't be just preoccupied all the time. So uh, my, uh, my lovely wife, Annie, was hiking on the weekend. I was leading a day long at Spirit Rock. And she saw many people walking the trails with their, with their earbuds in, plugged in the music. And she wanted to tear, you know, she felt a little aversion. She wanted to tear the earbuds out. But uh, she wanted me to tell you to unplug your, ear, your earbuds. <laughs> if you're eating an apple, look at the apple, notice it, bring it to your mouth, feel that yourself chewing it, feel the, taste the burst of flavor, stay with it until one bite is done before you grab the next, before you go for the next one. These little things are what incline us toward liberation of mind and love. Love is just that intimacy with life. You can't help but care about it if you can connect with it, just like I was saying with Andrea earlier. So may all beings experience liberation of mind and love a little bit at a time, a moment at a time. May our practice tonight and every night be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all the beings that we share this world, this universe with. Thank you so much for your practice. Thanks for your generosity last week and tonight and, and all the next groups. Thank you for your generosity. Anyway, walk well, sleep well, work well, lots of love. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.